This show was first broadcast on Free FM, Hamilton, New Zealand's community access media organisation. For more information on our lineup of shows and the role we play in the media, visit freefm.org.nz. Hello and welcome to today's programme. In our exploration of mind training like the rays of the sun by Tibetan master Namkar Pell, we've come to the section on Tonglen, the practice of giving happiness and taking on suffering, though not in that order. We've seen how to practice this for, li- for living beings, and last week we moved on to practicing Tonglen for the environment. In our discussion we talked about climate change, which is probably the most pressing problem facing us in our environment today. We saw how human activities, driven by greed and short-term gain, have created immense problems whose ramifications for the climate and environment are catching up on us faster and faster. And yet, we stall and hum and har about what should be done, if anything should be done at all. In our last program, we tried to look at what degree scientists generally agree that man and his activities have caused the problems we face today. And it appears that overwhelmingly, the consensus is that man is to blame for much of it, including climate change. But some people still put their heads into the sand and refuse to admit to what to others is so obvious. We saw that even in the face of expert opinions, people refuse to believe, which seems incredible, until you understand how much what some scientists call cultural cognition plays in our decisions. We will tend to form and maintain beliefs and opinions that fit with the immediate culture we feel we belong to, even if the facts contradict such beliefs. In a paper on cultural cognition entitled Fixing the Communications Failure, Professor Dan Kahan of Yale Law School states, Our research suggests that this form of protective cognition is a major cause of political conflict over the credibility of scientific data on climate change and other environmental risks. People with individualistic values who prize personal initiative and those with hierarchical values who respect authority tend to dismiss evidence of environmental risks because the widespread acceptance of such evidence would lead to restrictions on commerce and industry activities they admire. By contrast, people who subscribe to more egalitarian and communitarian values are suspicious of commerce and industry which they see as sources of unjust disparity. They are thus more inclined to believe that such activities pose unacceptable risks and should be restricted. Such differences we have found explain disagreements in environmental risk perceptions more completely than differences in gender, race, income, education level, political ideology, personality type or any other individual characteristic. Cultural cognition also causes people to interpret new evidence in a biased way that reinforces their predispositions. As a result, groups with opposing values often become more polarized, not less, when exposed to scientifically sound information. Kahan suggests two methods to counter cultural cognition. One is to present information in a way that affirms rather than threatens people's values, as people tend to resist scientific evidence that could lead to restrictions on activities valued by their group. He says, if on the other hand, they are presented with information in a way that upholds their commitments, they react more open-mindedly. 
The other way to stop public conflict over scientific evidence, he says, is to make sure that sound information is vouched for by a diverse set of experts. He found that if experts with differing stances accept a finding, people will be more open-minded about examining and accepting it. Kahan says it would not be a gross simplification to say that science needs better marketing. Unlike commercial advertising, however, the goal of these techniques is not to induce public's acceptance of any particular con conclusion, but rather to create an environment for the public's open-minded, unbiased consideration of the best available scientific information. But then he goes on to point out that scientists are not much good with such techniques. He writes, As straightforward as these recommendations might seem, however, science communicators routine, routinely flout them. The prevailing approach is still simply to flood the public with as much sound data as possible on the assumption that the truth is bound eventually to drown out its competitors. If, however, the truth carries implications that threaten people's cultural values, then holding their heads under water is likely to harden their resistance and increase their willingness to support alternative arguments, no matter how lacking in evidence. This reaction is substantially reinforced when, as often happens, the message is put across by public communicators who are unmistakably associated with particular cultural outlooks or styles, the more so if such advocates indulge in partisan rhetoric, ridiculing opponents as corrupt or devoid of reasoning. This approach encourages citizens to experience scientific debates as contests between warring cultural factions and to pick sides accordingly. We need to learn more about how to present information in forms that are agreeable to culturally diverse groups and how to stru structure debate so that it avoids cultural polarization. If we want democratic policymaking to be backed by the best available science, we need a theory of risk communication that takes full account of the effects of culture on our decision-making. So, loading the media waves with statistics on the dangers of climate change is not likely to lead to the agreement we need to deal with it. We have to find out how to put the point across so that it makes as much emotional as intellectual sense in a variety of cultural environments. But now, before we continue, let's set our motivation as we usually do, directing our positive energies during the program to gaining enlightenment so we can be of the greatest benefit to all beings. That, of course, means in particular leading them to enlightenment. For that, we should first become enlightened, for the best guide is the one who is intimately familiar with the path to follow. So let's use this program as a step to becoming enlightened so we can best help others to do so, as well as helping them with their everyday lives as is needed. Thank you. Now to continue our discussion of taking on the suffering of the environment, we turn to the book Miracle of Mindfulness by Thich Nhat Hanh. He writes, I like to walk alone on country paths, rice plants and wild grasses on both sides, putting each foot down on the earth in mindfulness, knowing that I walk on the wondrous earth. In such moments, existence is a miraculous and mysterious reality. People usually consider walking on water or in thin air a miracle, but I think the real miracle 
is not to walk either on water or in thin air, but to walk on earth. Every day we are engaged in a miracle which we don't even recognize. A blue sky, white clouds, green leaves, the black curious eyes of a child, our own two eyes. All is a miracle. Talking of children, in August of 2015, a group of 20 kids sued the Obama administration for failing to protect the Earth's natural resources for future generations. On its website, Business Insider Australia reports the case like this. The kids, who range from 9 to 20 years old, argue that by failing to prevent climate change, despite detailed knowledge of the dangers it poses, the federal government is violating their constitutional rights to life, liberty and property. The government, according to the plaintiffs, has not upheld its legal obligation to protect public trust resources like air and water, so the youth seek a court decision that will compel federal agencies to regulate emissions and take actions to prevent climate change. Now, unsurprisingly, the fossil fuel industry, arguing that regulation would impact on their takings, sided with the government, and the courts allowed the industry to join the government as defendants. Now, some of the kids wrote about their experiences under climate change, and their experiences certainly do not sound like anything Thich Nhat Hanh would find miraculous. For instance, one of the reports was by Alex Wozniak, a student at Columbia University who went further than just putting his concerns to the paper. He met with various officials like senators and congresspersons, as well as airing his concerns in the general public areas. In his 15-page account, Loznak highlights the impact that record-breaking temperatures have had on his family's farm over the last few summers. During these heat waves, many of our trees died, he says. We had plantations of timber trees that died. Some of our hazelnut trees died or needed intensive watering as a result of that. Victoria Barrett was a high school student from White Plains, New York, who also submitted a paper on her concerns, primarily that rising sea levels due to climate change were posing a threat to New York City. It's my favorite place on earth and I love it so much, Barrett says. The fact that we're right in the front lines of disaster due to sea level rise and the idea that this city somehow won't be the same because of human actions taken that could be prevented means a lot to me. It motivates me to fight more. She also says she believes that she and those standing with her represent the voice of their whole generation. The climate disaster is going to impact people in the future much more heavily than it already is now. This is an outlet for us to be able to make a big impact without needing the ability to vote, she says. Now, of course, the government under President Obama tried to get the case dismissed. Business Insider Australia reports the legal team claimed that the case presented political questions that couldn't be adjudicated by a federal court that the kids lacked sufficient standing to sue and that a ruling could not ensure the plaintiff's claim would be redressed since there are so many contributors to global warming. Also at issue is a concept called the public trust doctrine which suggests that the government has a duty to protect certain natural resources from damage for the future beneficiaries of them. The defendants alleged that the federal government doesn't have public trust obligations the way states do and that the atmosphere is not a public trust asset. 
However, on November 10th last year, a federal judge in Eugene, Oregon, rejected all of these arguments. Judge Anne Aiken said in her decision that just because the legal and political implications of the case are unprecedented doesn't mean it should be dismissed. This action is of a different order than the typical environmental case, her decision reads. It alleges that defendants' actions and inactions, whether or not they violate any specific statutory duty, have so profoundly damaged our home planet that they threaten plaintiffs' fundamental constitutional rights to life and liberty. And that means that the case will proceed. However, it will be tried not against an Obama administration, but a Donald Trump administration. Business Insider Australia points out that in the past, Donald Trump totally denied climate change in tweets such as, the concept of global warming was created by and for the Chinese in order to make U.S. manufacturing non-competitive. Trump also promised to cancel the Paris Agreement, setting targets to reverse the worst effects of global warming signed by nearly 200 countries last December. Because of this, Business Insider Australia says some environmentalists are pointing to the kids' case and the power of the judicial branch in general as a kind of last hope for the planet. Actually, the Obama administration, perhaps to undermine an adversarial stance the Trump administration might take, have set the scene for the kids to win by admitting many of the facts underpinning their case. The administration admitted that the use of fossil fuels is a major source of CO2 emissions. And I quote, placing our nation on an increasingly costly, insecure and environmentally dangerous path. It also admitted that for over 50 years, officials of the federal government have been aware of a growing body of scientific research concerning the effects of fossil fuel emissions on atmospheric concentrations of CO2. These include, and I quote, that increased concentrations of atmospheric CO2 could cause measurable long-lasting changes to the global climate, resulting in an array of severe deleterious effects to human beings which will worsen over time. The administration also admitted, and I quote, that from 1850 to 2012, CO2 emissions from sources within the United States, including from land use, comprised more than 25% of cumulative global CO2 emissions. They also admitted that the government, and I quote, permits, authorizes and subsidizes fossil fuel extraction, development consumption and exportation. They admit such activities produce CO2 emissions and say that past CO2 emissions from such activities have increased the atmospheric con concentration of CO2. Further, the defendants concede that current CO2, methane and nitrous oxide levels are at, and I quote, unprecedentedly high levels compared to the past 800,000 years of historical data and pose risks to human health and welfare. Also, they say, current and projected concentrations of six well-mixed greenhouse gases in the atmosphere, including CO2, threaten the public health and welfare of current and future generations. And they say scientific evidence shows that elevated CO2 concentrations have caused oceans acidification and ocean warming and caused adverse effects to coral reefs and wildlife. They further concede that stabilizing atmospheric CO2 concentrations 
will need deep reductions in CO2 emissions. Finally, the defendants, that's the Obama administration, admitted that the United States has supported fossil fuel development through overseas public financing, primarily through the Export-Import Bank of the United States, which provided $14.8 billion for 78 transactions or projects in the petroleum sector, including six in Russia FSU. The Export-Import Bank of the United States also supported numerous coal and gas power plants. Now, something that made me smile was the federal defendant's assertion that in some instances the case understated the evidence against them. A press release from the website of Our, Child, Our Children's Trust states, for example, plaintiffs allege the atmospheric CO2 concentration exceeded 400 ppm in 2013 for the first time in recorded history. But the federal defendants admitted it was for the first time in millions of years. In another example, the plaintiffs alleged that since 1993, sea levels have been rising at an average rate of 3.2 millimeter, millimeters per year. The federal defendants rebutted that sea levels have actually been rising at a rate of 3.4 millimeters per year. In yet another example, youth alleged that fossil fuel production in the United States was 65.244 quadrillion BTUs in 2014. But federal defendants insist that that, that year's production was 69.653 quadrillion BTUs. Well done, 20 enterprising kids in the United States. No doubt the new Trump administration will do its damnedest to shut them down. But it will be interesting to see how their case pans out and what difference it makes to the preservation of the environment in the States. What difference, though, a mindset makes? Compare Thich Nhat Hanh's deep understanding and appreciation of interdependence between us, the Earth, and its precious resources with the corporate minds that only see the environment in terms of financial gain. Unless we have a deep empathy with our environment, we will exploit it for short-term gains, but long-term suffering, both for the environment and all the beings in it, including ourselves. And that's why Nam Kapel recommends we take on the sufferings of the environment in our practice of Tonglen. We really do need to see and act on our interdependence. Listen to Thich Nhat Hanh again through his poem, Earth Touching. Here is the foot of a tree. Here is an empty, quiet place. Here is a cushion. Brother, why don't you sit down? Sit upright. Sit with solidity. Sit in peace. Don't let your thoughts lift you up into the air. Sit so that you can really touch the earth and be one with her. You may like to smile, brother. Earth will transform to you her solidity, her peace, her joy. With your mindful breathing, with your peaceful smile, you sustain the mudra of earth touching. There were times when you didn't do well, sitting on the earth, but it was as if you were floating in the air, you who used to go in circles in the triple world and be drawn into the ocean of illusion. But earth is always patient and one-hearted. Earth is still waiting for you because earth has been waiting for you during the last trillion lives. That is why she can wait for you for any other length of time. She knows that finally you will come back to her one day. She will welcome you 
always fresh and green, exactly like the first time. Because love never says, this is the last. Because Earth is a loving mother. She will never stop waiting for you. Do go back to her brother. You'll be like that tree. The leaves, the branches and the flowers of your soul will be fresh and green once you enter the mudra of earth touching. The empty path welcomes you, sister, fragrant with grass and little flowers. The path paved with paddy fields still bearing the marks of your childhood and the fragrance of mother's hand. Walk leisurely, peacefully. Your feet should deeply touch the earth. Don't let your thoughts lift you up into the air, sister. Go back to the path every moment. The path is your dearest friend. She will transmit it to you, her solidity, her peace. With your deep breathing, you sustain the murder of earth touching. Walk as if you were kissing the earth with your feet, as if you were massaging the earth. The marks left by your feet will be like the marks of an emperor's seal, calling for now to go back to here, so that life will be present, so that the blood will bring the color of love to your face, so that the wonders of life will be manifested and all the afflictions will be transformed into peace and joy. There were times when you did not succeed, sister, walking on the empty path, but you were floating in the air because you used to get lost in samsara and drawn into the world of illusion. But the beautiful path is always patient. It is always waiting for you to come back. That path that is so familiar to you, that path that is so faithful. It knows deeply that you will come back one day. It will be joyful to welcome you back. It will be as fresh and as beautiful as the first time. Love never says, this is the last. That path is you, sister. That is why it will never be tired of waiting. Whether it is covered with red dust, or with autumn leaves, or icy snow, do go back to the path, sister, because I know you will be like that tree. The leaves, the trunk, the branches, and the blossoms of your soul will be fresh and beautiful once you enter the mudra of earth touching. And now the final word today I'm going to give to Professor John Epstein, research professor at the Institute for World Religions in Berkeley, California, who wrote an article in the magazine Vajra Bodhi C entitled Environmental Issues, a Buddhist Perspective. He writes, All life is interrelated and interdependent. Nature, or we could say our natural environment, is alive and at least partly conscious. It is neither sacred and perfect, nor evil and to be conquered. The deep reality of nature is not separate from our fully enlightened nature. That's Buddha nature. Buddhists understand nature as a useful and conventional designation without any unique intrinsic reality of its own that absolutely distinguishes it from what is not nature. In a less technical sense, it is the conditioned world prior to extreme human distortion of the patterns of interrelationship between humans and the rest of the living beings on the planet. It can also be understood as the living web that inter interconnects individual beings, both sentient and non-sentient, in interdependence. What is ultimately real about that web is its Buddha nature, its Buddha-ness. That deep reality of nature is not separate from our own fully enlightened nature. 
When we purify our minds, we experience the true nature of nature. And then we see that we are actually living in a pure land or Buddha land. That Buddha land is not somewhere else but right here. The sixth Chan Buddhist patriarch, the Venerable Hui Neng, quoted the Buddha as saying, As the mind is purified, the Buddha land is purified. From the Buddhist viewpoint, humans are not in a category that is distinct and separate from other sentient beings, nor are they intrinsically superior. All sentient beings are considered to have the Buddha nature, that is the potential to become fully enlightened. Buddhists do not believe in treating of non-human sentient beings as objects for human consumption. Enlightened beings do not harm sentient life. If they did, they would not be enlightened beings. They have compassion for unenlightened beings who are attached to our polluted world, filled with pain and suffering, and who do not experience themselves as living in a pure Buddha land. By looking inward within our own body-mind, one gradually realizes that there is no ultimate division between inside and outside, that the patterns of the natural environment are not separate from the patterns of our own body-minds. Experience of those patterns is not considered an ultimate truth or the goal of Buddhist practice, but awareness of them is an important aspect of the path that leads to enlightenment. Nature, as wilderness, is important to Buddhists because it provides a place where rapid progress in Buddhist practice or self-cultivation can be made. Nature grounds us and can soothe us. Unspoiled natural locations, usually places in the wilderness where the natural energies are peaceful, are the ideal places for Buddhist practice. Here is what some traditional Buddhist sources tell us about the benefits of the natural environment as a place for Buddhist practice. The eighth of twelve or thirteen ascetic practices recommended by the Buddha is dwelling in the forest. The Buddha said, I am pleased with that bhikkhu's dwelling in the forest. And when he lives in a remote abode, his mind is not distracted by unsuitable visible objects and so on. He is free from anxiety. He abandons attachment to life. He enjoys the taste of the bliss of seclusion. Ajahn Mun, who lived from 1870 to 1949, a great modern Thai Buddhist master from the forest meditation tradition had this to say about staying in the wilds. The more desolate and distant the place is from human habitation, with wild beasts roaming freely about, the more prepared is the mind to soar up from the abyss of defilements, being at all times like a bird about to fly. The defilements are still there in the depths of the mind, but in such an environment the power of the mind is greatly developed and appears to have gotten rid of hundreds of defilements, with only few remaining. This is the influence of environment which gives encouragement to an aspirant at all times. I hope you are often able to go and practice in such an environment. But now, this is where we are going to have to leave the program today as time is up. Thank you very much for joining me and please tune in again next week. Also please dedicate any positive potential we have accumulated today to gaining enlightenment for the sake of all beings, everywhere. Thank you, and goodbye. For more episodes, use the accessmedia.nz app for iOS and Android devices, or subscribe to this podcast via Spotify, iHeartRadio, or Apple Podcasts.
This free FM podcast was brought to you with support from New Zealand On Air.